Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 41. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 7th, 2021, in New Orleans. Today is exactly the 450th anniversary of the Battle of Lepanto, in which the Catholic League, led by Spain and Venice, soundly defeated the naval forces of the Muslim Ottoman Empire. The League's 212 galleys and 60,000 sailors and soldiers defeated the 278 galleys and galliots and 84,000 sailors and soldiers of the Ottoman Empire, destroying or capturing 187 Muslim vessels at the cost of only 13 galleys lost. In the course of this almost unbelievably lopsided victory, the Holy League freed 12,000 Christian slaves, most of whom pulled the oars in the Ottoman fleet. That victory cemented Philip II's reputation as Catholicism's greatest champion on earth, if that still needed to be proved, established that the Ottomans were not invincible and to some degree made it possible for Spain to turn the attention of its navy to the Atlantic. A tenuous connection to the history of the Americans, to be sure, but I could not let Lepanto's 450th anniversary pass without saying something. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, genius, defeat, and glory. I hope you listen along. This episode is Set Fair for Roanoke, Part 3. If you haven't started at the beginning, which I'd love you to do, you might listen to at least the last two episodes before this one, since they all tie together. As we move forward through the timeline of the history of the Americans, things are getting more complicated because the history of the area that is today's United States gets more dense. For the first nine months of this podcast, we launched the first episode on January 1st, 2021, It was pretty easy to move along in chronological order because, in general, only one big thing was happening at any given moment. Sure, in the first 90 years, we had a little bit of overlap. Soto and Coronado were banging around at more or less the same time. But now more stuff is happening, and as the years go by, many things will happen at the same time. For example, in the last two decades of the 16th century, Just as the English were finally showing up, the Spanish were continuing to explore and invade the Southwest. I've already gotten emails from Southwesterners concerned that I'll skip those expeditions. Not to fear. However, we are going to stick with the English through 1590 so that we can integrate the Roanoke expeditions with the Spanish Armada. Then I'm going to circle back, as promised, with a look at the argument over Francis Drake's Novo Albion, which I will probably wrap into an episode that consolidates Drake's legacy, including the good, the bad, the ugly, and yes, 
the noble. As you know, it is my hypothesis that Drake is underappreciated for his role in catalyzing English North America. Then we'll go back to the Spanish in the Southwest. After that, I expect to get to Jamestown, although I have now telegraphed that so often that you should just ignore me and assume I will get distracted by something else that interests me. Anyway, once there, I will be venturing into territory where there are many strongly held feelings and much deeper expertise than I can hope to muster. So I expect to take some incoming fire. I will do my best to respond to criticism as it comes in, both in the podcast and in blog posts on the website. It is July 1585. Richard Granville, in command of the first English expedition of colonization to reach the territory that is now the United States, has arrived at the outer banks of North Carolina with five ships, only two of which were part of his original fleet. The flagship Tiger has run aground, and in the course of refloating her, a large part of the expedition's supplies had been lost. Thomas Cavendish commands the Elizabeth, which made it to a pre-planned rendezvous on the southwestern coast of Puerto Rico. They have two small Spanish ships captured in the Mona Passage between Puerto Rico and Hispaniola, and a new pinnace for shallow water exploration, built from scratch. Unbeknownst to Grenville and Cavendish, there are 30 Englishmen wandering around the barrier islands not far to the north, unceremoniously dumped there by George Raymond, captain of the Red Lion, who had blown off the colony to privateer between Newfoundland and the Azores. They also didn't know yet that the Roebuck and the Dorothy, thought lost since a storm off the coast of Portugal, had found their own way and were anchored offshore not far to the north, waiting, hoping more accurately, for Grenville and Cavendish to show up. And finally, the most important thing they didn't know was that the resupply ships under the command of Amius Preston and Bernard Drake had been ordered by Elizabeth to sail for Newfoundland instead of North Carolina so that they could harass the economically important Spanish codfishing operation. In late June or early July, Grenville dispatched a handful of English and Monteo, one of the two Indians who had come back to London with the expedition of 1584, to Roanoke Island to alert the chief of the Secatons, Win China, and see if he would permit settlement there. By July 6, they were back with a favorable response from Wingina, and the further news that they had located the Dorothy and the Roebuck and recovered a few of the men dumped by Raymond before he went to Newfoundland. By July 11th, those two ships had returned to Hatteras. All in all, there were probably 500 or so surviving English mouths to feed, and still the prospect of settling as many as 250 with not nearly enough food. It is therefore likely that before the end of July, Grenville had settled on leaving behind Ralph Lane with only around 100 settlers, far below the original mandate. The question was, where should the settlement be based? Grenville had been charged with leaving up to 300 men at Roanoke Island, a site some miles to the north scouted by Amatis and Barlow on their recon mission the previous year. That starter colony was to have been reinforced by perhaps 200 more when Preston and Drake arrived, presumably in the next couple of months. 
But Grenville would have had doubts that a single site on a small island already occupied by some of the Secotans could fend for itself. And in any case, he no doubt wanted to explore the area on his own. Grenville was described by Lane, who, like many of the men, didn't much like Grenville, as of, quote, intolerable pride and insatiable ambition. He was therefore not the sort to take even his cousin's recommendation without doing his own due diligence, especially in light of the loss of a good portion of the food in the sodden hold of the tiger. In mid-July, Grenville organized the first European exploration of Pamlico Sound and its coastlines. He commanded the Tiger's boat, and Lane captained the pinnace built in Puerto Rico. The expedition consisted of at least 60 men, and importantly included Thomas Harriet, the scientist, and John White, the artist, who in two short years would become the grandfather of Virginia Dare. White had been drawing and painting realistic pictures all along, and his art, much of which is based on this very mission, is crucially important to our understanding of the indigenous people of the region. Quinn's book, Set Fair for Roanoke, has long chapters on local Indian tribes and culture and illustrates those with White's drawings. I'll put up a separate blog post on the website with some images of White's art to give you a taste of it. In general, I'm going to pass over a lot of the details about the Indians in the region, not because I do not think them interesting or important, I actually do, but because describing them thoroughly does not lend itself very well to an audio podcast, and I do not want to tarry forever on the Outer Banks. I will, however, talk about the tribal groups to the extent they are important to the fate of the English colony, just as I did back at the end of episode 38. The boats devoted a week or more to exploring the villages around the mainland coast of Pamlico Sound, probably following a route recommended by Manteo. In general, the Indians of the region welcomed the English, and White had time to make sketches of villages and people and take notes for future drawings. At one point, they passed into the mouth of the Pamlico River and then into the Pungo River. At some distance upstream, they came to a village called Aquascogoc, where the reaction was not so friendly. Some Indian men swam out to at least one of the boats and searched it, making off of the various things, including a silver cup, probably belonging to Grenville. A few days later, when the cup was found missing, Grenville dispatched Amatis and 11 men in the tiger's boat back to Aquascogoc to demand the return of the stolen silver cup. This was not forthcoming, so the English fired the village's houses and cornfields, presumably because they believed that disproportionate retaliation would deter future theft and teach some sort of lesson. Contrast Grenville's response with Francis Drake's at the island of Mocha off Chile in 1579. There, Indians had promised good relations and then duplicitously ambushed his men, shot Drake himself, and hacked two English to pieces. Drake's crew had clamored for Drake to retaliate by raking the beach with artillery fire, but he refused, arguing that the Indians had only treated the English so badly because they thought they were Spanish, who had abused and enslaved the Indians. Grenville and Lane could have used a bit of Drake's wisdom and restraint. 
By the end of July of 1585, it was time to settle on a location for Lane and the hundred or so men that were to get the colony started and prepared for reinforcement by Preston and Drake, who, of course, would never show up. Grenville decided on the original plan, Roanoke Island, and on May 29th, Manteo and Gran Gaminio, once again acting as Chief Wingina's envoy, came aboard the Tiger to sort out the details, agreeing on a site on the northeastern tip of the island close to the seat of Wingina's government there. In August, the ships were unloaded of remaining supplies. A site was cleared, the first buildings and fortifications went up, and various expeditions continued to explore the area, at least in one case coming into armed conflict with another tribe, probably an enemy of Wingina's. Notwithstanding the early fighting, Lane wrote a series of very optimistic reports to be carried back by the ships that were now about to return to England, reports that would provide the basis for continued investment in Roanoke. Between August 7th and September 8th, the various ships departed for England, leaving behind Lane, Thomas Harriet, probably White, and 107 other men. Why probably White? David Beers Quinn, author of Set Fair for Roanoke, says that White and Thomas stayed behind with Lane in 1585 and 1586. James Horn, the respected author of A Kingdom Strange, The Brief and Tragic History of the Lost Colony of Roanoke, says that White went home with the tiger and helped make the case for a return voyage. I lack the time or inclination to resolve that particular inconsistency, and since Quinn's is the more scholarly work and Horn's is mostly devoted to the lost colony of 1587, I'm going with a theory that White spent that winter in North Carolina. In any case, Grenville and the Tiger left on August 25th. Grenville would snatch a substantial Spanish prize on the way home in a very daring operation, converting an otherwise disappointing expedition from loss into profit in that one piratical moment. While the English were establishing themselves on Roanoke Island, and while the Dorothy, the Tiger, and the Roebuck were sailing home to England, the world had changed considerably. Philip II of Spain had roused himself to retaliate for English privateering and support for the Dutch rebellion by attacking English shipping, going so far as to promulgate a plan for doing so. John Sugden, in his biography of Drake, explains how Elizabeth reacted, quote, In England that summer of 1585, Dutch envoys begged for help to save Antwerp from Spanish reconquest urging Elizabeth to intervene more decisively in Europe while there was still time. As a monarch, she might resist encouraging rebellion against a legitimate king. As a housekeeper, she shrank from the expense of war. But as a patriot, sovereign of her realm, could she see the Dutch fall for want of friends when the result would have been England's isolation? She wavered, but then in June, a little London trading bark, the Primrose, returned home with a fearful tale of Spanish treachery that raised outrage throughout the country. Like many another foreigner, the Primrose had been exporting grain to Spain, where the crops had failed. But in May, Philip suddenly declared an embargo in English vessels and Spanish ports, and had them stripped of their arms, munitions, and tackle to equip his fleet at Seville and Lisbon. 
The Primrose was boarded in the Bay of Bilbao, but fought free and escaped, and when she reached England, her crew were able to show a document they had captured, which was no less than Philip's instructions to Spanish officials for the seizure of English ships. In the rising indignation, Elizabeth was pushed into action. She did not declare war, at least not directly, for she clung to the increasingly tattered notion that acts of war need not necessarily mean war. They might be legitimate but limited reprisals for injuries, such as Philip's embargo or the involvement of his ambassador Mendoza in a recent plot against the Queen's life, and yet fall short of all-out conflict. But she went further than she had ever done before. She agreed that an army must be sent to the Netherlands to prop up the ailing Dutch rebellion until Philip would grant satisfactory terms. And she unleashed Sir Francis Drake upon the Spanish coast. Now, for the first time, the great sailor was given the Queen's commission, signed on July 1st, 1585, and authorizing him to visit the ports of Spain to release the English ships and crews impounded by Philip. Better still, as far as Drake was concerned, commissions of reprisal were issued to merchants whose property had been lost to Spain, enabling them to recoup their losses by plunder. Under their color, Drake could rove in search of booty and honor wherever he chose. Back to me. It was also in this context that Elizabeth redirected Roanoke's resupply ships to Newfoundland. Drake's expedition, which would amount to between 25 and 30 ships and wreak havoc in Spanish possessions in the Atlantic and Caribbean, departed Plymouth on September 14, 1585, just as Grenville's Roanoke fleet was working its way home. It would arrive at Roanoke the next summer and come to the aid of Lane and the surviving colonists. We'll get back to Roanoke now and then explore Drake's voyage in detail next week or the week after, depending on my muse. Ralph Lane was now in command of 108 other men on an island with hundreds of Indians just inside the barrier islands of North Carolina. The resupply voyage of Amias Preston and Bernard Drake, to be clear, no relation to Francis Drake, was now overdue and winter was coming. Lane certainly had his shortcomings as a commander. Quinn says that he was hot-tempered and vain and boastful. But nine months later, when Francis Drake would arrive after burning half of the Caribbean to the ground, only four of the 108 would have died. Compared to the carnage experienced by every previous Spanish or French attempt to settle in North America and the English at both Jamestown and Plymouth, Lane's year in command of the first Roanoke colony surely counts as remarkable. In addition to the workaday requirements of survival, Lane's biggest challenge in the first few months was that his men were getting bored. In late October, early November, he sent a party under probably Philip Amatis, who stayed in North Carolina with Lane, on an expedition in the pinnace north to the Chesapeake Bay, the land of the Chesapeans. Here Quinn specifically identifies Harriet and White as having gone along, and White having made a map of the voyage. They sailed north past Kitty Hawk, where a couple of bicycle builders would get their flyer into the air 318 years hence, visited various Indian towns at the mouth of the James River, 
and camped there for a couple of months, using it as a base to explore the lower Chesapeake Bay and perhaps the eastern shore. By all accounts, they established friendly and constructive relations with the Chesapeans, who at least tolerated their encampment. No mention is made of the Powhatans or their chief, Wahan Sunakak, who would figure so prominently in the Jamestown story. Harriet and Lane documented the great fertility of the region. Certainly, it was a much better place for settlement and a privateering base than Roanoke Island. And the pinnace returned to Roanoke in late February or early March 1586. By the time that the Chesapeake expedition returned, relations between the English and the Secotans had manifestly deteriorated. When Gina's Secotans were increasingly irritated by the continuing demands of the English for food, exacerbated by a persistent drought. But by far the bigger problem was the rapid spread of European diseases through the indigenous population. Quoting Horn, Thomas Harriet later reported in his account to Raleigh the deadly impact of the outbreak. As the English moved from town to town, quote, the people began to die very fast, and many in short space. In some towns, about 20, and some 40, and some 60, and in one, six score, which in true was very many in respect of their numbers. With no natural immunity to the diseases and no means of curing them, Indian priests could do little other than pray to their gods for relief and hope the sickness would pass. Back to me. Of course, nobody, not the Secotans and not the English, knew what caused disease or whether the English were responsible for it, which, of course, they almost certainly were in the sense they were carriers of it. The cause of the strange mortality, as Horn put it, became a point of contention among Secotan elders who developed various theories for it. Some argued that the English were dead men who had returned to the world and were immortal. Others believed that the carnage was caused by, in Harriet's words, invisible bullets fired by English soldiers from many miles away to punish them. One of Wingina's closest advisors, Ensinor, told Wingina that the English were servants of God and could not be harmed, and that seeking to destroy them would invite more death. The sighting of a comet that coincided with the first outbreaks seemed ominous. Juan Cheese, who had gone to London with Monteo and Arthur Barlow's pinnace at the end of the 1584 expedition, argued that the English were too violent and unreliable to be allies. In early 1586, both Wingina's brother, Gran Gaminio, and Ensinor died, and Wingina made up his mind. The English had to go. He assumed a new name, Pemsapen, which Horn says may have meant something like he who watches closely. Pemsapen, whom I will continue to refer to as Wingina in the spirit of making this complex story a bit easier to follow while you are raking leaves or working out or whatever you do while listening to this podcast, prepared for war while pretending friendship. The first part of the plan was to lure Lane and as many of his men as possible away from the fort they had built. He told Lane that Menatonin, the great chief of the Choanox up the Choan River, 
had convened a general assembly of Indians to plot an attack on the English. When Gina advised that Lane launch a preemptive attack, hoping, of course, that Lane and his men would not survive and that he could defeat those left behind on Roanoke by starving them or killing them directly. Lane bought the story at least up to a point, and when the Chesapeake expedition returned with the pinnace, took 50 or 60 men, including Monteo and three other Indians, to engage Manitonin. Lane found the spot, determined that an assembly of various tribes was indeed taking place, and marched in and seized Manitonin. Things were not as Wingina had advertised, notwithstanding the gathering of the tribes. Manitonin told Lane that it was Wingina, not he, who wanted war with the English. Wingina had sent word that the English were bent on destroying the Indians and was seeking allies in the coming war. The Secotans, Manitonin said, were the enemies of the English, and the Choanocs had no reason to attack the English other than in self-defense. So who was Lane to believe? Lane, who surely knew that he and his men could not survive against a united front, reserved judgment, and entered into prolonged talks with Manitonin, presumably with Monteo translating. Manitonin and his son, Skiko, told Lane all about the tribes in the region, including a powerful tribe to the north with a chief adorned with pearls and hostile to any strangers who entered his realm. This was the first the English had heard of Wahusunakak, known to most Americans in popular lore as Powhatan. Skiko told Lane stories of a soft metal panned from a swift river running down from the mountains to the north and west, which to Lane's ears meant gold. This new world's going to be great, John. I'm going to get a pile of gold, build me a big house, and if any Indian tries to stop me, I'll blast him. Yet another clip from Disney's baleful rendition of the Pocahontas story, which is probably the greatest offense to history by an American media corporation in my lifetime. And that says a great deal. Minotonin promised Lane an alliance, or at least non-aggression, and Lane headed upriver into Mangoic territory to look for gold. Along the way, a party of Mangoic warriors fired an arrow barrage on Lane's boat from the shore. None of the English were hurt, but Lane concluded that he would need a bigger expedition to contend with the Mangoics and headed back to Roanoke Island. The journey was arduous. The English ran out of food and survived by eating the dogs, mastiffs, they had brought along, returning the day after Easter, 1586, that would have been April 7th, according to Google, much to Wingina's surprise and disappointment. At just about this moment, certainly by mid-April, a new supply ship, its name lost to us, finally left England for Roanoke Island at the expense and under the orders of Sir Walter Raleigh. Then in late May, a larger reinforcing fleet of at least six ships and 400 sailors and colonists departed England for Roanoke under the command of Sir Richard Granville. Not that Lane or anybody else who might benefit from knowing about the inbound ships knew that they were coming. Shortwave radio would have resolved a lot of the endemic confusion that plagued 16th century colonization projects. 
Anyway, Wingina decided to cut off the food supply to the English, being mostly soldiers and in any case having arrived in August expecting Preston and Bernard Drake to show up with more supplies. They had not grown their own crops other than some small vegetable gardens. Lane knew that they could not survive huddled behind their defenses, so he divided them into groups of 20 and sent them to Croatoan, Hatteras, and the mainland to live off the land as best they could in small groups. This, obviously, made them far more vulnerable to piecemeal attack, but Lane's decision pushed off the immediate risk of starvation. In any case, Wingina spent the time after Lane's return trying to recruit Mangoics, Moratuks, and Weopomiaks, God, I pronounced that badly, to join him, and had called for a meeting of those tribes to take place on June 10th, 1586. The meeting never happened. Manitonin's son Skiko alerted Lane to Wingina's plans in late May, and Lane, his men still scattered and foraging for food, sprung into action. Now let's go to Horn's account with a few of my comments interwoven. Quote, Lane sent a message to inform Pemzapan. Remember that that was Wingina's newly assumed name for purposes of war. That he had heard news of an English fleet and was going south to Croatoan Island to meet it. With Pemsipan under the impression that he had left the fort, Lane organized a surprise attack on the Succotans living on Roanoke Island and destroyed their settlement. Quickly following up, on June 1st, Lane crossed to the mainland with 26 men, including Monteo. On entering Dasamungkapuik, Wingina's largest mainland village, Lane saw that the Secatan chief was accompanied only by a small group of his principal followers and seized the opportunity to attack. Shouting, Christ our victory, the prearranged watchword, I'm sure Jesus appreciated being invoked to launch that battle. He led his men toward the startled Indians surrounding the chief. Philip Amata shot Pemsipan, who fell to the ground, and the English began killing all those assembled except some of Monteo's friends, who happened to be in the town. In the midst of the fighting, the English were amazed to see Pemsipan, whom the soldiers had thought dead, suddenly leap to his feet and spring into the woods nearby. Although badly wounded, he had kept his wits about him and had feigned death while waiting for an opportunity to escape the slaughter. One of Lane's men went off in hot pursuit and, after a long chase, emerged from the woods, holding up the severed head of the chief for all to see. Pemzapan's death ended the fighting, and soon afterward the English returned across the water to Roanoke Island in triumph. Back to me. Lane's victory brought peace of a sort, at least from the English perspective. The other tribes recruited by Wingina did not go to war, and some, including Chief Menatonin, regarded the English as potentially useful allies in their regular conflict with the Iroquoian tribes further inland and, probably, the Powhatans to the north. Manteo had remained loyal, which suggests that the Croatoans to the south also supported the English instead of the Secatans. In all likelihood, Lane's men at least temporarily solved their food crisis by looting Secaton granaries and fields. 
At the same time, he had to know that Roanoke Island was not a tenable location for a long-term settlement. It could not sustain a large population of English without the support of the local Indians, and when Gina had demonstrated that Indians would, frankly, do the obvious thing and turn off the food supply to gain military advantage. Lane, having heard of the Powhatans but not having actually contended with them, would conclude that the next site for English colonization should be on the Chesapeake. On June 8, 1586, within a week of Lane's men defeating the Secotans and decapitating Wingina, Francis Drake's fleet, hot off of having burned down the Spanish towns of St. Augustine, Cartagena, and Santo Domingo, arrived at Hatteras looking for Lane. There they recovered some of the foraging English from Lane's party, refilled their water casks, and sailed up the Outer Banks to the latitude of Roanoke Island by June 9th, where more English spotted them and summoned Lane. They must have been anxious that the fleet was Spanish, bent on destroying them, until they got close enough to see the cross of St. George blowing in the sea breezes. That June 9th would be the first day that an English fleet would drop anchor at an English colony in North America. Lane and Drake conferred, and Drake offered to do all he could to help. Drake gave Lane a bark of 70 tons, the Francis, two pinnaces and four small boats, and equipment and supplies for 100 men for four months. Lane's plan was to relocate the remaining men, still at least 104, to a site on the Chesapeake, establish a new colony, and then leave a garrison there while he returned to England in August to report to Walter Raleigh. And then a hurricane struck, less than two weeks after the, quote, official start of the Atlantic tropical storm season. Back to Horn's description. Within 24 hours, a hurricane came roaring up the coast from the Caribbean, striking the fleet with such ferocity that anchor cables broke, masts snapped, and many of the small ships, including the Francis, were driven far out to sea or lost. The massive storm raged for three days, during which hailstones as big as hen's eggs battered the fleet. Lightning played continuously across the sky, and great water spouts were sucked up high into the air, quote, as though heaven and earth would have met. For those men who had never witnessed a hurricane, the experience was terrifying and confirmed Lane's opinion that the unprotected anchorage offshore was far too dangerous for shipping. When the storm cleared, Drake offered Lane another ship, the Bark Bonner, but her draft was too deep to make it into the inland waterway. And in any case, the hurricane was the straw that broke the colonists' morale. Yes, block that mixed metaphor. They wanted home. So Drake loaded all but three of them up and on June 18th set sail for England. Manteo once again traveled to England along with another Indian named Toei. As for the three left behind, they had been among one of the groups dispersed during the food shortages on the mainland. Or perhaps they'd been dispatched to take Skiko home. Either way, they could not be recovered in the aftermath of the hurricane. These three would become the first lost colonists of Roanoke. 
Drake's fleet, with Lane and Harriet and White and the rest of them, would arrive in Portsmouth at the end of July 1586. A month later, that unnamed supply ship arrived back in England, still fully laden. It had reached the Outer Banks just after Drake and Lane departed, poked around a bit, failed to find anybody who could, even by signs, tell them what had happened to Lane's colony, and after ten days or so, sailed to England without having the first clue that Lane's men had been picked up by Drake's fleet. Only a few weeks, or even days, before. Grenville's reinforcing fleet reached the Outer Banks in late July, around two months after he had sailed. Secure in the reasonable belief that Raleigh's supply ship had sailed for Roanoke six weeks earlier, Grenville had taken his jolly sweet time to get there, actually pirating an English ship, two French ships, and a Dutch flyboat. In all such cases, his rationale was that his prizes had been trading with the enemy, but English courts, after the fact, found otherwise. Grenville, it should be said, was kind of a jerk. In any case, Grenville was astonished to find neither Lane's colony nor Raleigh's supply ship at Roanoke Island. The one account we have, the deposition of a Spanish pilot recovered by the Spanish subsequently, reports that Grenville, baffled, searched around for a while, left 15 men, presumably volunteers bent on staying in the New World at the site of Lane's abandoned settlement, picked up an Indian who spoke a little English, who would go on to live with Grenville until he died a couple of years later, and then ranged around the North Atlantic hunting for prizes until his crew got too sick, returning to England on the day after Christmas, 1586. This seems like a great place to bring this episode to a close. Next week, we will take a close look at Drake's mission that ended with the rescue of Lane and his men and the controversy that surrounds it. And after that, we will return to Roanoke to learn the fate of the 15 colonists left there by Grenville in the fall of 1586. And to be clear, those 15 colonists are not the lost colony that you hear about. Thank you again for listening. If you like what you hear, please write a generous review on Apple and share the podcast on your social media platform of choice or, even better, by conversations with your actual friends in the real world. By all means, send me questions, comments, corrections, and suggestions for sound clips via the contact page on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans.com at gmail.com.